0: Good morning. Merry Christmas. My name is Jeff Heiser. I'm one of the pastors here. It's really good to be with you all this morning. Thank you for joining us on Christmas Eve. Uh, Especially if you're visiting, maybe in town visiting family, we really are glad to have you uh, with us this morning. We're going to be looking, we're in this season of Advent. Uh, It's not something that we have to celebrate, but it's something that we kind of try and set apart. Uh, in our church calendar and just our rhythms as a church, and we're going to be looking this morning at Micah chapter 5, an Advent passage, a Christmas passage, one that you maybe know um, or have heard before. You can turn there. There's, it's also it's in your Bible. There's a Bible in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in front of you. You can just take it. You don't have to tell us. You can just grab it. That's our gift to you, our Christmas gift to you. We'd love for you to have uh, that Bible if you need it. So we're going to be in Micah chapter 5. It's also there in your bulletins. December 16th, just eight days ago, was the 250th anniversary of the Boston Tea Party. I had no idea, but it was. 250 years since the Boston Tea Party, just eight days ago. the couple of things hit me when I, when I heard that. One was, I, I had this, I thought, you know, open water, Boston, December, what were they doing out there? It must have been so cold. I don't know, what, what in the world? My second thought was, okay there's something about the Christmas story that pushes against who we are as Americans. Because who we are as Americans is we are people that throw off kings, who forge our own way in the world, who throw tea into harbors, right? But the Christmas story, the Christmas story, among other things, one of the things it says to us is that we need a king. Not just any king will do. We need a good king, but we need a king. We're going to look at the Old Testament book of Micah. It's a prophetic book, maybe not one that you know well. It's between Jonah and Nahum. Nahum, you know, everyone's favorite book of the Bible. Um, Kind of stuck in the middle there of the part of the Bible we don't read. But Micah, like so many of the prophetic books, among several of its, many of its messages, one of the main messages that it conveys to the people of Israel is that the people of Israel, God's people, need a king. And not just any king will do. They need a good king. And the baby that we celebrate, that is born in Bethlehem, that we're celebrating tomorrow and today, is the king that was promised, that was needed. The, the baby born in Bethlehem is not just a baby with a good birth story. This is the king that we need, that the people of Israel and the people that we need uh, today. So we're going to be looking at Micah chapter 5. As I said, we're going to be in, we're going to read verses 2 through the beginning of verse 5. We're not going to get all the way through verse 5. But if you would, turn um, to our passage here and hear now the reading of God's word. But you... and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we have your word from so, so long ago, and that even then, you were promising your people that you would send a Savior. Father, we thank you for our Savior, fit savior who you have sent in whose name we are gathered. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. When I was in college, I had the opportunity to study. Part of my program was I studied abroad in Spain. And while I was there, I had the opportunity to hike the tallest mountain in Western Europe outside of the Alps. To make a long story short, I didn't make it to the top. There was a storm, okay? But that's not the point. The point is, at the top of that mountain, and the reason a lot of people hike it is, at the top there's a grave. There's a grave at the... This is the highest mountain in the Western Europe, outside of the Alps. And at the top is a grave of one of the last Muslim rulers of Spain. Spain was ruled by by a Muslim kingdom up until 1492, when... uh, They were driven out. So the second to last Muslim king is buried at the top of this tall, tall mountain. Why would someone want their grave to be at the top of a tall mountain? Because whoever's at the top is the best. And the king wants to be the best and to to signify, I am the best. I am laid to rest at the highest point that any of you all have ever seen. I am at the top. Why do I bring this up? Because the king described in this passage does the exact opposite. He has the exact opposite impulses. In fact, he comes in obscurity and in humility. You could say that he comes down the mountain. And we're going to talk this morning about how he comes. How does this king come? Well, we have three points His beginning is humble, his coming is planned, and he comes as peace. And I'm saying it like that intentionally. We'll get to that in a minute. So his beginning is humble, his coming is planned, and he comes as peace. So his beginning is humble. Look there at verse 2, right at the very beginning. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who were too little to be among the clans of Judah. There's not a lot going on in Bethlehem. That's the point. There's not a lot going on. It's, it's about five miles south of Jerusalem, right? Small little town, which that seems really close, but it really is this nondescript humble town. If I was to say something to you like, hey, next summer, I'm going to London, the United Kingdom, you would all say, well, you don't need to say the country. We know where London is. But if I said, well, next summer, we're going to Tigerville. Do you know where Tigerville is? It's, it's in Greenville County. You just have to drive up 276. At some point, you're going to hang a right. Kind of continue down there. North Greenville University, it's out that way. That's Tigerville. Ephrata is the region that Bethlehem is in. Bethlehem is so nondescript that it can, it's five miles away, and you still have to say the county, the area that it's in. This is a small town. It's nondescript, and this is where the ruler is going to be born. And we sing lots of songs about Bethlehem this time of year. But it's not because Bethlehem is that great. And maybe this is just a chance for us to state the obvious. The Messiah, the Jesus, this King, was born in extremely humble circumstances. He was born in a small town to not wealthy parents. He was born in the dark. He was born in a stable. He didn't have a place to stay. That is when he came. That is how he came. Not in strength and glitz and glamour. He could have been born in Jerusalem only five miles away. Instead, he comes in weakness and poverty. His beginning is very humble. Now, why does that matter for us? Why would it matter that he comes in humility? Well, because you see, in the stable we have a king who doesn't say, climb up the mountain to me if you can make it. We have a king who comes down the mountain to us, who comes to us, who meets us in the valley of weakness, of humility. Now that mountain, if we go metaphorical with that mountain, it can be the mountain of money or status or success or being attractive or or whatever it is, having the right connections, having white-collar work. In this story, the Christmas story, you have a king that has none of that who has absolutely none of that. He's weak. He comes in weakness and humility. And what that means for us is that we can come to him with our weakness and our humility. Do you know that a large portion of the first Christians were were slaves? Now, we think of Christianity as kind of a middle-class religion in America, but who is it that came to, 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 to Christ first? It was slaves. It was the downtrodden. Who, In fact, even today, who is it that, like, who comes to the Lord first? Well, it's the, it's the um, socially awkward, the needy, the lonely, the poor. Why? Because he was poor. This king was poor. Because he was born in Bethlehem, this nondescript town not far from Jerusalem. This king is so for the weak that he comes in humility. But that was the plan all along. His birth was not just an accident of history. God just wasn't like, well, I guess this is what I'll have to do. No, not at all. It was all part of the plan. And so this is our, for, our second point. His coming was planned. And in this passage, we have both a, a plan coming from the distant past and a plan going out into the future as well. Okay? So let's look at that. Look at the past. Look at verse two. He says, Whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. This king has a history. And what God is saying through the prophet Micah is that this is a plan that I set in motion long, long, long ago. This is a plan that was carried along with the promises that I made to Abraham a thousand years ago, and Moses seven hundred years ago, and David and his family three hundred years ago. This is a plan that is finally going to come to fruition in this king who will be born in this town, the town of David. His coming was planned by God long ago. But there's more here. Last last week we sang a song called Infant Holy, Infant Lowly. Do y'all remember that? We sang that song. One of the lines in there, one of the refrains is, Christ the babe is Lord of all. Christ the babe is Lord of all. What are we saying? We're saying that this baby is not just a baby. He is a baby. But he is the God of the universe. This is these, like, one of the like, most central miracles of our faith, that God became incarnate in a baby. That Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. God himself became man. And commentators agree that what Micah, when he says his coming forth is from of old, Micah is tipping, is it more than tipping his hat? He's, he's, he's saying, listen, this Messiah King, he's not just human, he is also divine. Right? That It's not just the plan that is coming forth from eternity past. It's actually the ruler himself who is coming forth from eternity past. The prophet Isaiah, actually Isaiah, interesting, he's actually prophesying at the same time as Micah, their contemporaries. And he says, he, he says in this passage we know, a similar idea. He says, for unto us a child is born. Sam preached on this a few weeks ago. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Micah is saying the same thing, that this child would be God God himself. That God would this is the plan, that God would come to us, become one of us, and he himself would be the shepherd that we need, the king that we need. So that's the past dimension. Well, what about the future? Well, what Micah says is, he's saying, listen, unfortunately, this is not going to happen today. Micah is writing around 720 B.C., when he makes this prophecy. 720 years before Jesus comes. Do you know what was going on 720 years ago? The Black Death. I mean, it is so, so long ago. It's almost three Americas ago. Columbus sailed 530 years ago. Okay, it is, 700 years is so long but God has a plan. God has a plan for the future. God has a plan for those 700 years, but unfortunately, the getting there might be kind of hard, and that's what Micah says. Look at what he says in verse 3. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Now, we might read that sentence and think, oh yeah, we're talking about Mary, right? She's going to give birth to, to Jesus. Yes, it can mean that. But Micah uses this imagery of a woman in labor to describe a time of pain and suffering and hardship that ends in great joy. And so what Micah is saying is he's saying that, that, that the, what the future looks like is suffering and pain and hardship and waiting that will culminate in the great joy of the coming king. That's 700 years of labor. And what is Micah calling the people of God to do? To wait for the coming king. Because God himself, he has not lost the plot. He knows what he is doing. And Micah, in this, he's really putting us in the Advent mood. Advent, today is the last day of Advent. What is the mood of Advent? The mood should be anticipation. And anticipation... Is, suffer- is, is waiting. It's waiting. And as I've heard Brian say many times, waiting is its own form of suffering. This is the mood that Micah puts it in. His, God's plan for his people involved their waiting, which means it involved their suffering. And Advent matters to us today because so many of us are still waiting. You know, maybe we're waiting... For, for a child to come home, we're waiting to find a new job, or waiting for loneliness to be over, waiting for a child when we want one and don't have one. Waiting is part of life. But this passage tells us, even in waiting, God has not lost the plot. His coming is, was planned all along. The God who comes to us in our weakness is the God who has control over where all this Advent waiting is going. And Micah gives us a glimpse here at the end of where that plan ends. And it ends with peace with what in Hebrew is, is called shalom. Shalom is where, when everything is the way that it's supposed to be. When everything, where, uh, when everything is the way it's supposed to be. And it's interesting what Micah says here. The king is shalom. The king is peace itself. Look at what it says down at verse 5. And he shall be their peace. This is my third point. He comes as peace. If Micah had said, he, will, he shall give them peace, or he will come with peace, those things would be true. True. But the the people of Israel might have been tempted to think, well, he comes to bring them an alternative to war, right? Peace as opposed to war, the opposite of war. And in fact, that would have been really um, important to them because at this point in Israel's history, they are literally surrounded by Assyria. Like the world power is sieging Jerusalem. In fact, Bethlehem is very likely behind enemy lines at this point. They need peace. They understand war. But Micah says, no, he is peace. Well, what is he, what is he talking about here? Well, and we, we get a, verse, a clue in verse 2. He says, For you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel. For me. That for me is for God. That's God speaking. The primary actor in this drama. Just like the drama of all history or the drama of the Bible, the primary actor is God himself. What Micah is saying is that this divine king is coming to bring God's people back to him. To give them ultimate shalom, ultimate peace. The new birth that this king will accomplish. At the end of this time of pain and waiting and labor will be reconciliation and peace with God himself. People who are sinful, who deserve judgment, will instead get peace through and in this king whom God sends. The king is the conduit of peace, that God, the peace that God wants for his people. His beginning in Bethlehem was not the low point of his life. There was a deeper valley, Jesus' disciples, you know, they wanted to make him king. In fact, at one point there was a mob that was trying to crown him, and he kind of had to escape. Like he he could have he could have climbed the mountain, but he didn't. And in fact, his coming, the pattern of his coming is the pattern of his by which the, of, is the pattern by which he brings peace to us. He takes on humility. He takes on weakness. The reason he is peace is, as one, one pastor put it, because at the climax of his life, he ascended not a throne but a cross. He, at the climax of his life, he ascended not a throne but a cross. He is peace because he reconciles sinful people to God. He is the one who takes enemies of God and makes them friends of God. He is the one who takes people who should receive judgment and gives them grace and mercy and love and relationship. He's the one who finds the lost and rescues the oppressed. And Mike actually gives us a few glimpses into what this peace looks like. And this is one of those things where we could just sit down and sl- just slow walk through all this. We actually don't have, I wish we had more time to get into this, but look, look at the end of verse 3. He says, then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. There's this image of the, the gathering back of God's people. Jesus is a gatherer, um, but he's not a gatherer because, oh man, he's so cool and hip and everyone wants to be around him. No, he's a gather. Do you all remember the parable of the lost sheep? The 99, Jesus leaves them to go find the one. That is how God, how Jesus is a gatherer. That's how he gathers his brothers. He goes after them. He finds them and he brings them safely home. The end of verse 4 says, They shall dwell secure for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Security. Security. Freedom from fear. That's what this piece looks like. Freedom from fear. All of the things that we're afraid of. In him and in his care. We're no longer afraid. Look at the beginning of verse 4. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. In the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. What is he saying? He's saying Jesus is going to take all of the resources of God himself into, into shepherding and loving and caring for his people and bringing them peace. On the cross, we who deserve judgment instead get peace in and through this king who's born in Bethlehem, whom God sends. And if we have faith in him, he is our peace. He is our peace. We have peace itself with him. That's what he promises us. That's been God's plan from eternity past. That's why he came to little Bethlehem to be born. Peace with God through Jesus Christ. Not just a good birth story, but the story of reconciliation for the whole world, of peace for the whole world. Well, so Christmas Eve, we're going home today, Christmas tomorrow, what, what are we supposed to do? What, what do we do with this? What do we do with this passage? Well, you may know this passage from Matthew chapter 2. In Matthew chapter 2, this passage is quoted in the story of the wise men. The, the, in a star appears, and, and the, the magi see it, and they, they set out for Bethlehem. And they come to Jerusalem, and they start asking around, where is this, the child who's been born? And where, where will he come? Where is he? And, and the scribes and, and, and the priests start searching through the Bible. And they come to this passage and they say, he's going to come in Bethlehem. And they say, in fact, they quote it, they say that in you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. And so they go and they find the child. And he's probably at this point a toddler, Right? They find Jesus and they fall down and they worship him. And it says, interestingly, that when they came to his house, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. So, how, what do we do with the Christmas story? How are we to respond to this king who has come? Well, I think that the, the, the wise men are instructive for us we respond. We respond by worshiping. We respond with great joy. You know, joy is something that we sing about all the time. You know, it's not really a word we use except in Christmas carols, but joy is what this king brings. Joy. And so one of the ways that we can respond is by experiencing joy in the Christmas season. Now, that's not necessarily easy for everybody. We've, ex- like, we've experienced loss. We know the waiting. We know that things are not all perfectly all right. But the king has come. The king has come. Joy to the world. The Lord is come. That is how we can respond to this king who God sends for us as people to bring peace to people like us. Let's do that. Let's pray this morning. Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, we know what it feels like to wait and to suffer as we wait. We know that the world is not the way it's supposed to be, but we know that you came and we know that you're coming again. So, Father, would you this morning give us joy as we celebrate your coming so long ago. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.